ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB Podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. Last month marked the five-year anniversary of the so-called Snow Revolution, the wave of mass protests in Russia throughout the winter of 2011 and 12. I was struck by how little this anniversary was marked inside and outside of Russia. So it made me wonder how we should think about these unprecedented protests, what, if anything, is worth remembering, and what is their legacy. For this, I turned to Mark Bennett, who recently published a book on the protests and their aftermath. Mark Bennett is a British journalist who has been living in Russia for almost two decades. He writes for Newsweek, The Times of London, and Politico, as well as other U.S. and British newspapers and magazines. He is the author of I'm Going to Ruin Their Lives, Inside Putin's War on Russia's Opposition, published by One World. Here's Mark Bennett. So I wanted to start uh, by having you talk about the origins of your book, I'm Going to Ruin Their Lives, Inside Putin's War on Russia's Opposition. What inspired you to write this book? Basically, when the protest started, it was most unexpected, to say the least. I mean, the Arab Spring had just finished, or was just continuing. And it, it, it never seems as if anything like this could really happen in Russia. Friends, fellow journalists were even kind of joking about, imagine if that happened in Russia, imagine if that happened near the Kremlin. It just didn't, didn't seem as if it would, could ever possibly take place. And then um, when it did, it was just a sudden eruption of a passion for politics that irrespective of of the people involved, of the opposition leaders involved. Uh, it was just an enthralling time, um, just because of the moments. So more, 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 more than anything that was going to decide Russia's future or Russia's destiny. It was just exciting, basically. And uh, the characters involved, from the opposition um, leaders to their opponents, was just such an incredible cast of characters. Um, I think I wrote in my books, like they seemed as if they'd been plucked from some kind of like overly ambitious Russian novel, you know, just dozens and dozens of strange and weird people that, and you just wanted to find out more about. So that was one reason. And um, there was also, as the protests continued, there was also perhaps a sense of frustration with the way it was being reported in the Western media, which was, I mean, predictably, not by everyone, of course, but um, some, some media outlets that, Basically, it was very black and white, you know, like Putin was this, was the ultimate evil. And anyone who stood against with him was a saint whose words were not to be questioned. Uh, whereas, in fact, it was, okay, well, I won't comment on is Putin the ultimate evil or not, because we had enough discussion of that recently. But uh, as far as the opposition leaders and opposition protest figures were concerned, I mean, they ranged from basically the seriously unhinged to dangerous far-right nationalist leaders. We've also, of course, there are some very reasonable and intelligent people within the opposition, which was what I wanted to try and point out, that it is, wasn't just this kind of black and white Putin against the good Russians. You know? so, and also it was funny. I mean, there was, there was, there was lots of, it was quite kind of hard to get across in articles, because obviously in an article you're limited to like 1,000, 1,500 words. But I mean, there was a lot of humor in the protests as well, uh, ranging from kind of Navalny's very dry um, sarcasm to uh, to um, 
Sergei Udalsov, the leftist leader, and his just um, insanity sometimes it seems. I mean, when he he would he would he would turn up turned up at one protest and said with sunglasses on in in I think it was. It was, it was September or October anyway, and it certainly wasn't sunny. And he was like, I'm wearing sunglasses because my mood is black. Let's all, all of us, come to the next protest in sunglasses. Uh, it was just surreal. And uh, there was another one. There was another one where he said, Russian state media is saying that we're all in the pay of the State Department. Is there anyone here today who's in the pay of the State Department? If so, put your hand up. <laughs> so, I don't know, it was just, it was just funny. And like I said, it was enthralling times. So just felt like... A, a good topic to write about. Right. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, that comes across in the book is definitely the complexity and the variety of the cast of characters that you talk to that does pierce through the black and white portrayal that a lot of uh, Western media portrayed the protests as. But, but why did the humor strike you? Why, was that an impo- why is that an important thing to bring out for you? I would say it was important to bring out. I would just say it was something that I found funny and I found um, to be... A refreshing aspect of uh, of a story that could have just been relentlessly dull, perhaps, or, or or grim, you know. So I mean, when when I mean again, most of it, to be honest, I mean, it was either Alexei Navalny, the anti-corruption activist, but his his humour was more on his blog and you know, his tweets, you know. I mean, uh, and again, Udaltsov, who was was just laugh a minute basically with the protest. But I mean one 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 time he stood up and he said, I'm not I'm after this after this, this protest meeting's over, I'm gonna stand on that fountain and I'm not leaving until Putin quits. And it was like minus twenty. So No, but you know the 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 reason why I ask, I guess, is because you know the the protest did have a, a level of sarcasm and humor and satire. I mean from the slogans, from the the posters, but also from these from Navalny and also Udaltsov that you that you mentioned, and uh, you know this is I think in I think it's an important aspect because on the one hand the the protests themselves do lend to this euphoria this it's almost like a celebration of sorts the sarcasm does have a political content because on the one hand it uh, it is a way to delegitimize in some cases the the power that these protesters are protesting against but on another level too it also suggests too that yeah we're doing this thing we're protesting we're very serious but at the same time you know we we have a sense of humor about what we're doing as well um and i think that's an interesting thing to actually capture yeah for example i mean navalny's slogan um that united russia was, was the party of crooks and thieves i mean when he called them zhuliki in in, in in Russia, Zhulikit, which is just just brings them down to size. You know, of course, Putin was just and his um, allies and his security services, United Russia, whatever, were just this very massive, threatening kind of uh, body. Just to call Zhuliki, just to, you know, immediately brings the image of like um, some crook with a bag, Mark Swag. You know, they, just just to make makes them more like a cartoon character. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, and some some of the slogans are very clever as well. And um, in the immediate aftermath of the protests as well, when when there were just things like um, United Russia had been given 146% right. on, on state television and things. There were just lots of memes and tweets and, blah, 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 and just lots of um, funny stuff, basically. And now, the, the mass protests erupted in Moscow, as we know, in December 2011. And there certainly is an immediate context about that spawned them, which we'll, we'll talk about. But But you begin your book in December 1999, when Yeltsin resigned in favor of Putin. So why was it important to begin your story at that point? Well, I think it was important to show, I mean, first of all, just the roots of Putin's rise to power for people who weren't familiar with that. And then also to 
illustrate why exactly he'd become so popular and why for many people there didn't seem to be doesn't seem to be an alternative to him which was very much based on the idea of stability uh, i know lots of russians who now loathe putin and, and, uh, but at, in, say for 2006 2007 2008 well, i can't say they were particularly enthusiastic supporters of him but when when asked they would say well he's better than yeltsin and we, we're living better which they were and arguably he was better than yeltsin um at that point in some respects maybe perhaps all of them weren't entirely down to him you know the, the oil price rocketed for example but that's a different issue and also i think it was important to show how how little space a little scope there was for protest before they unexpectedly erupted i mean the crushing of kind of independent media dissenting voices and just also the way that politics had been sidelined and an entire generation had grown up who had absolutely no desire to take part in the political process at all and those people who were in the opposition were in completely completely marginal i mean no one knew who they were no one was going to it seemed no one was ready to follow them into the streets and again i think that was all just to do with the way putin had come to power and his promises of stability and that his the, the success of his advisors in um constructing the reality in which russia is putin putin is russia do you think i mean because it's interesting that that it's framed like this and, and of course you're not the only one who 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 has written about this you know history of early Putinism and then throughout the 2000s. Do you think that this, the elimination of, of political life to a large extent or meaningful politics in Russian society created a pressure cooker that could only be released through this eruption of protests? Well, I think while many people ported Putin or couldn't see any alternative to him, I think a lot of people were fully aware of the corruption which pervades the country and and the injustice which is and has very much been everywhere for the last however many years and um when 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 there was a cause to rally around i i think many people for many people it was just kind of an awakening They're like yeah things are wrong and we do need to change and this is the cause we're gonna we're, we're going we're going to use um in order to force through or not <laughs> that change and so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that I agree that there was there was there was a lot of frustration building up, and there wasn't any particular outlet for it because the accepted opposition groups, the accepted protest leaders, well, they were, as I said, completely marginal. They would gather like 30, 30 40 people in central Moscow, shout for a bit, and then perhaps the police could be bothered to drag them off. You know? So, I mean, it was it was quite strange to see when when they started. People who uh, acquaintances and, and friends who didn't seem to have any interest in politics at all were suddenly going to the protests, were suddenly wearing white ribbons, were suddenly talking about like uh, Russia without Putin. It was, it was it was just a sudden, as if a switch had been had been pulled somewhere. Which I think is also, I mean, uh, an element which goes through Russian history of like long, long, long periods of of tolerance and um, acceptance of one's fate, and then suddenly one day they think, ah, I've had enough, then then sweep leaders from power, or in this case, not. <laughs> Now, like I said, you, you have an impressive array of people that you associated with Russia's opposition. You talked a lot of different characters um, and, and where they stand, what they believe, their personalities to a large extent. And, and it really does span, as you said, the ideological spectrum within Russia. But what is Russia's opposition and, and what does it mean to identify with it for these people? Well, I think for anyone who's not that familiar with, with 
um, Russian politics. It's firstly, we've brought the point out that, Rus that there are two Russian oppositions. There's, there's the official Russian opposition, which is the parliamentary opposition, which is the Communist Party, the LDPR, which is headed by Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who's um, basically the Trump of Russia, and um, a fair Russia, which is which 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 was formed by Kremlin advisors to take votes away from the communists. And of those three parties, I mean, basically they all they all support to an extent Putin, and they all support the ruling United Russia Party. The communists are, of course, of these three parties, the most genuine. While its leadership is prepared just to take the, the federal funding every year, which is a, a large amount of money, in order to provide kind of mock opposition at the lower level, grassroots level, I've met many, many communist activists who are sincere people, who are genuine, who do believe that Russia is ripe for uh, another socialist revolution. And these are actually leftist um, opposition activists within the Communist Party. But then there's the second opposition, as it were, which is the unapproved opposition, who were the people basically who organized the 2011-2012 protests. And these, again, are people like Alexei Navalny, Udalsov, Ilya Yershin, the Gutkovs, who are, are sometimes allowed to form political parties, are sometimes allowed to stand at elections when and if it's, it's um, of benefit to Putin to make it look, to give the appearance of a, of a functioning democracy. So initially to, to define what the opposition is. And if we talk, I mean, I'm more interested in the, in the second opposition, the unofficial opposition. And I think to, to be to be part of that is just basically to be against Putin. And there's very little that actually these people have in common beyond that. I mean, the ideological beliefs range from what we in the West recognize as kind of pro-democracy, liberal stance to just a very far right nationalist viewpoint. And these people are in the opposition because they believe Putin to be a traitor to the Russian race. So he's not, he's not, he's, he's not authoritarian enough. He's too weak on immigrants, for example. So I think that it's very hard to define in one sentence, as you probably noticed, <laughs> what the opposition is in Russia. Right. No, but I think, I think it's important to, to illuminate this complexity because the picture we do get is an opposition with a capital O, but the the various fractures that we see in this opposition aren't usually apparent to people who don't watch this stuff closely. Uh, it, it's interesting that you've pointed you pointed out that at least in the grassroots level of the the Communist Party that you do have some genuine activists. You do have uh, people who will pose if they had the chance more of an op a genuine opposition. Is there ever any relationship between say this? grassroots party level and say the street opposition yeah there is i mean quite a few members i mean i don't have any figures i don't think anyone really has but um i've met a lot of communist party activists who are also members of the left front which is just head, headed by i mean it's kind of disbanded a little bit now which was headed by Sergei Gorbachev, the leftist leader who's now leftist opposition leader who's, who's now in prison so i mean yeah I mean, I've, I've met quite a few who are members of both the communist party and, and left the front and these people tend to realize that Gennady Zuganov, the veteran leader of the Russian Communist Party, isn't really interested in taking power, isn't really interested in a socialist revolution anymore. It's just um, basically his job to be the opposition leader. But I think they remain within the, within the Communist Party in the hope that they can reform it from a grassroots level. But then also, also as an outlet for their perhaps more 
radical tendencies. They're also members of groups such as the Left Front. It's always really interesting because I've been hearing about this for a, a while now, and I'm just waiting for the day to either Zuganov finally goes his own way into retirement, or there is an actual you know, coup within the party to replace this old kind of decrepit guard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's very possible, but uh, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there was talk that Zuganov had offered the leadership of um, the Communist Party to Dalsov. You know? So, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how genuine that was. I spoke to Dalsov. He was very up for it. He was like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'll take over the Communist Party. We can have a revolution. Uh, you know? so, but, uh, but then I guess, like, I was in... Um, I was in provincial Russia recently and talking to Communist Party uh, grassroots activists, and they're all extremely radical, and they're all extremely, very angry, very aware of the injustice going on. But they, they believe in the Communist Party still. You know? They still believe that, 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 that this, this, this is um, a party through which they can force change. One, one can point to many you know, causes, short-term and long-term causes, uh, for to explain why these these protests erupted when they did in 2011 and into 2012. So what are, what in your view are some of those long-term and short-term causes? I think one of the causes of the protests was the presidency of Dmitry Medvedev, because suddenly he started, he started to sprinkle his speeches with liberal terms and terms um, and phrases professing a respect for the rule of law, for democracy, uh, and even in some points, uh, arguing with Putin and, and, and his advisors, and I think, oh, well, I don't think I know that he he inspired a lot of members of the opposition to try to seize on his words, which weren't actually backed up by anything at all, and try to use them as some way of um, pushing against Putin. I mean, there was um, one activist I spoke to who had the idea of holding a protest where on their signs they would. Exclusively have quotes from Medvedev's speeches, you know, like the "We don't need a sovereign democracy, and, and freedom is better than non-freedom," which is which is one of Medvedev's um, perhaps most famous expressions. Slightly clumsy, but it kind of <laughs> summed up a lot. You know, it said a lot about Medvedev as well. So, I mean, and um, Dmitry Gudkov, who was an opposition politician, told was quite open when I spoke to him about how he really believed in Medvedev's. Um, plan to modernize Russia. This was big thing that he was going to modernize Russia, that he was going to sweep away kind of the injustice and the abuse of the law, and that Russia was suddenly going to become this kind of modern European nation. He was planning Moscow would be a, fin- a world international financial center. Things, you know? So, I mean, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of talk, and I think from kind of filtered down to ordinary people, people within the opposition movement and gave them hope that maybe they could change something, that maybe attempts to forge a kind of democratic movement in Russia would be perhaps tolerated since Medvedev was saying all these things. So I think that was one of the causes. I think there were other causes as well. Obviously, I mean, obviously the immediate cause was vote rigging at the 2011 elections. And um, there were dozens of videos online showing vote rigging, basically showing, showing Officials rewriting votes, showing use of things like invisible pens so that people go in, vote for a party other than Putin's United Russia, and then the officials would wipe, wipe off, wipe it off and um, rub it out and put the cross where they needed to put it. There were also other things. I mean, obviously, the nationalists had grievances as well. I mean, they, they've long wanted Putin to impose visa regime with former Soviet states in Central Europe. 
for example, they've um, long been angry at his funding of, of Chechnya and its leader, Ramzan Kadyrov. And then there were the liberals who were angry at kind of human rights abuses and things like this. So I, mean, I think there were many causes. And again, they, this, was, this was a flashpoint, basically, which allowed all the groups opposed to Putin to come together and for a very short time anyway, um, unify in an unprecedented movement which managed to bring like 100,000 people onto the streets of Moscow, which was quite an incredible thing at the time. It's interesting about the, the Medvedev period and it providing this possible hope and, and potentially even a possible context for the development of some sort of reform and democratic reform or liberal reform to some extent in Russia. Because, you know, most of us, and and I think it's a pretty common view, view those four years as a bit of a joke. It's, it's kind of a, a gaping hole in in our story of uh, post-Soviet Russia. But in retrospect, I'm wondering if maybe there's room to reevaluate these four years. How, how do you understand them? Well, yeah, I mean, politically, they were a joke. I mean, everyone knew from day one that maybe it wasn't the real power. I mean, there was the, the famous Russian joke about um, Putin and Medvedev look at, look at a car. Medvedev's in the... Get into a car, Medvedev's on the steering wheel. He looks down and says, like, there's no pedal. Putin is that? I've got the pedal, you know. Well, something, something along those lines. Maybe I told it badly, but you get the idea. He's not in charge. Ah. So, yeah, I think that Medvedev had no power and didn't have any, any authority to press through any of the changes that he was talking about constantly. But his, his presidency also coincided with a period in post-Soviet Russian history where Russians for the first time, middle-class Russians in the big cities, suddenly didn't have to worry about how they were going to feed their families so much. Suddenly didn't have to think that much about money because they were earning it. Oil was, was, was sky high. There was a lot of money pumping into the big cities. And they basically started to think about other things than material gains. And I mean, even Navalny said it, you know, like our revolution is kind of, oh, our revolution is perhaps not the right word. Our um, protests are based on abstract things like freedom and self-respect. Yeah, and uh, this is where they kind of differed and perhaps failed to reach out to the provinces because in the provinces, people weren't really so bothered about freedom of speech, self-respect. They're more worried about, as um, George Bush said it, how they're going to put food on their families. You know? So, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was lots of people were talking about the concept where human needs start off very low, you know, like just the ability to feed yourself and then rise and rise and rise and rise to get to the top of the pyramid, which is when you start to seek a kind of fulfillment politically and in social terms you know? and that, that that was the level that lots of russians said they felt there at, at that time and that medvedev's presidency kind of gave them the enthusiasm to try and push for this yeah the language the language of of humiliation on the one hand and dignity on the other amongst uh, many who protests i think is quite striking and interesting because it also reflects for me uh back to 1917 in the early days of the February Revolution, where there was very much a language of dignity, a language of humiliation. And that's actually quite present in your book as well, particularly when the announcement in September 2011, when Putin announced that he was going to run for a third term and Medvedev was basically going to sit back and take whatever is given to him. And then, of course, with the the blatant widespread vote ring, too, is another moment of humiliation for uh, the Russian population, particularly this more politically conscious and politically active aspect of the Russian population. So 
So what what role do you see this language playing in those early months of uh, the protests? Well, I just I, I mean, I think it's important that we uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, it was a humiliation and it was um, it was something that angered a lot of people. But it's still not quite clear why they were particularly angered by this. I mean, it's, it wasn't the first it, it wasn't the first injustice in Russia. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't the last either. I mean, things happen every day, every week. Terrible, terrible things. You know, but, but just for some reason, it, it was seized upon. I mean, I don't think we'll ever really completely understand like, why that had that, that effect on society. This is an interesting question as to why why this, like why this moment. And I think it does have something to do with the fact that the Medvedev years did provide at least, you know, some potential light at the end of a very dark tunnel. And then at the moment in which you kind of buy into this, even with caution, it's closed up again. And so, so the question, the question is, well, what role did it play? Like, how, how was this a motivating factor in, in people's, you know, expressions of politics? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's also perhaps linked to the rise of the internet and not just the internet, but broadband internet in Russia as well. You know, it was where for the first time people could see with their own eyes, vote rig, you know, on YouTube, people could see like police abuse, police torture. People could, could actually, watch Putin being booed at a boxing match, which happened just before the protests broke out, for example, whereas before the only real way they could see things was, was on was on state television. You know? So the internet gave them, I mean, obviously before people were discussing things, people were writing about things, but when, when YouTube takes half an hour to load a clip, you know, it doesn't have that quite kind of straight same jab, you know, but as you can just see it, send it to your friends. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And I think around that time was pretty much the, earliest period when it started to get fast, you know, where you could send things to people and they could see it quickly. I mean, it's like, it's like before elections, and I think it had a, um, a very big psychological effect as well, you know, whereas before perhaps opposition members would tell things to people, you know, like, do you know that this, do you know that about this corruption, do you know about these abuses? And they would say, uh, uh, uh. But then it's quite a different thing. Have you seen these abuses? Have you seen these corruption? You know? And I think maybe it shocked a lot of people as well at that time. That's why so many people felt the need to go to the streets. I think actually that's a really good point. So it, it's it, it's reported, and you cite this in your book, that um, Putin said that the protesters had quote ruined my big day, meaning uh, his inauguration and 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 specifically the Bolotnaya protests, and that now quote I'm going to ruin their lives. Uh, how did the Russian state and Putin respond to these protests? Well, I mean, initially, the very early days, they didn't seem to quite know how to respond, you know? I mean, um, everyone was expecting the first mass protest to end just with hundreds of thousands of arrests. And in fact, not a single person was, was detained that day. Even the head of the Moscow police got on stage to thank the crowds for being so civilized and saying that we today acted as the police force of a civilized nation, which was which was something of a shock. But then I think... As the protests continued, they decided to to crack down, basically, because I think that's basically what what the Russian state does. <laughs> is 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 it, it it doesn't like dissent. It doesn't like people um, standing up and pointing out its 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 faults. And so, I mean, the the song that was used at all the protests was a um, Soviet era rock song called called Changes by the group Kimo, and. Um, I'm not the first to point out that that there were changes. They just weren't for, 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 for the better. You know? I mean, I mean, there were a host of laws cracking down on protests, you know, making it 
you can now get up to five years for being detained on repeated occasions at protests. And that doesn't mean violent protests. That doesn't mean mass protests. That can just mean standing near, standing anywhere, basically, with a sign saying, saying pretty much anything that the authorities don't, don't like. Or in some cases, people, people have been arrested for holding a blank piece of paper. You know? so, so, I mean, I think the, the, the intolerance for the censor became very sharp very quickly. Because I mean, right now it's it's kind of hard to imagine that the authorities would allow a hundred thousand people to march next to the Kremlin. I mean, now protests. Anyone who wants to have a protest these days, I mean, the Russian some of the Russian opposition groups wanted recently to have a protest against Kremlin's bombing of Aleppo, and they were just not allowed. They just told no. Before that, there was there was a protest against um, internet censorship, and they were forbidden to protest in the center of Moscow, and they were sent to a park in northeast Moscow, basically. And they just had to protest in pretty much a, a wood. <laughs> they were just standing there, you know, with their sides, shouting, which eliminates the point of, of protest. So, and, and I think also broader, perhaps, the, I think we can draw a direct line from the 2011-2012 protests to Russia's military intervention in Ukraine, because I mean, I think the, the Maidan protests terrified Putin in that he saw what potentially could happen to him himself if corruption was taken up as a cause by a larger percentage of the population than just the 100, 150,000 people who came to Moscow, but like a million people, one and a half million people in the center of Moscow. And many people believe, I believe, that um, he just wanted to plunge Ukraine into chaos and to show what the consequences of overthrowing the president of any country, perhaps, or particularly a post-Soviet country, were. Uh, that, that it would be death, it would be bloodshed, it would be violence, um, and all the terrible things that you associate with war. In hindsight, of course, we probably didn't need to bother since um, the Ukrainian post-Maidan government seems to have done its a good job itself and discrediting the revolution. But that was, pro- was probably his thinking at the time, anyway. Now, at the same time, though, you know, there there was a very complex operation of cracking down in terms of selective arrests, trials, imprisonments, but also new laws. There was co-optation, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this one aspect to explain the protests basically coming to an end. But nevertheless, I mean, these protests were unprecedented in their size, as you said, their activity, their energy for political energy for post-Soviet Russia. What accounted for their successes and, and their ultimate failures within this movement? Because there was even this, this attempt by many of the key players to form some sort of coordinating committee that seemed to just collapse. After Bolotnaya, th- that seemed to pull the plug on at least a lot of the protest enthusiasm, in addition to bring a heavy hand of the state. So within the protest movement itself, as best we can call it that within this, ver- this diverse group, what, what accounted for their successes and, and ultimate failures? The only success I think they really had was that they inspired a lot of people to get involved in politics and they inspired um, a lot of civil activism, which is continuing to this day. I mean, a lot of people who went on those protests and are completely disillusioned and won't go on any protests ever again. I don't know, they told me. But then again, I mean... I mean, for example, Ildar Dadin, the, the, he's um, a Russian activist who's in prison now and has been allegedly been tortured um, in prison 
um, he's the, the first protest he went on was in 2011, the first, the first, the first um, anti-vote vote fraud protest. So, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people have remained within the opposition movement, and perhaps more importantly, not that they're in the, within the opposition, but they've remained in, engaged in politics you know, and engaged in civil activism. So I think that was their success. I think their failures important to explore to attempt to explain why they failed. And I think they failed because they were too timid in a way. When when the protests began, they immediately after the, the, the vote fraud allegations, the demonstration was supposed to take place in the very, very center of Moscow's um, between the between the Kremlin and the Parliament. And basically the opposition leaders agreed with the authorities that they wouldn't hold it there and that they would hold it further away on Balotnaya, which translates as swampy square, which um, they kind of got sucked into. So, I mean, I think from, from the outset that that was, that was kind of very illustrative of the fact that they, they, they didn't perhaps have the courage or the energy to really take on the state. I mean, people said that people would have been hurt, you know, if they'd gone to the center, that it would have been violence and things, which is perhaps true. I mean, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, would, would dream of advising like the Russian opposition how to overthrow Putin or anything. But I mean, I think it, I think it remains it remains a fact that if you do want to overthrow a, a government, you can't let that government tell you where and when you're going to go and protest, which is what they did. I mean, you know, I mean, after Balotnaya, they 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 applied to be allowed to protest like two weeks after this, you know? and they said, okay, you can protest on that day at that place from 10 a.m. till 5 p.m. And they were like, okay, we'll do it, and they went along. And I think by the second protest, even though there was still a lot of enthusiasm, it was kind of clear to anyone who was watching perhaps more objectively that this wasn't going to work. You know, that the, at the most, at the most, it was going to provide a much-needed boost to civil activism. But as far as overthrowing Putin, it just 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 wasn't going to happen. I mean, for example, I mean, Maidan, they didn't they didn't ask if they could rally. You know, they, they just rallied. In fact, when they were told specifically that they couldn't go on protests. Like a million people turned up the next weekend, I think. You know? So there was a there was a very big difference. Now, now your book ends, and your story ends with the assassination of Boris Nemtsov on on twenty seven February two thousand fifteen. How does his murder serve as an endpoint, and, and what was its impact on within Russian opposition circles? I think his murder was more was more symbolic than anything. Actually, uh, I mean, it just giant seemed to it was. Just summed up the, the, the death of the of, of the protest movement, literally. You know? But I don't think it actually had. I mean, this is obviously the way it was portrayed in the West was that Putin had taken out an opposition leader because he was scared of revolution and he was trying to put, preserve his own rule. I don't think this this is true. I mean, I think Nemtsov's murder probably had very little to do with actual politics per se, and more the fact that he publicly. I mean, obviously, I can't prove this, so no one else who makes his allegations can prove it. But um, I think his murder probably had more to do with the fact that he publicly insulted Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader of Chechnya. You know? And he was asked, Kadyrov, when the protest started, Kadyrov said oh, they should all be locked up and sent to prison. And he was asked, and the interview was recorded and shown online. He was asked, like, what do you think about this? And Nemtsov, in his kind of typical manner, was said that Kadyrov was a schizophrenic. That he was insane, that he should be locked up in a psychiatric ward, and he obviously had big problems in his head. <laughs> and I don't think anyone who follows Russia would argue that people who tend to 
criticize or personally insult Kadyrov in that way usually come to a very good end. You know, it's, it's quite quite a long line of people who have um, been killed after getting into an argument with Kadyrov. Also, said we can't prove any of this. So, and also, I mean, I mean the, the the narrative that Nemtsov was killed because Putin was afraid of him doesn't hold up either. I think because I mean Nemtsov, for all his organizing skills and experience in opposition politics. I mean, he's not the main threat to Putin. He wasn't the main threat to Putin. You know? I mean, the main threat to Putin is obviously Navalny. You know? So if Putin wanted to finish finish the protest movement, he would have killed Navalny, which then people say he didn't want to do that because Navalny would have become a martyr. You know? It just doesn't hold up. I don't think anyway, I don't think there was any political reason. I don't think Nemtsov's death was, was, was connected to opposition politics at all. Now, the fifth anniversary of the protests was last month, and it seemed to pass without much recognition or, or fanfare or really much memory. So what is the legacy of these protests? I mean, you already mentioned the growth, the continuance of some civil activism, but how should we place them now and think about them now? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's perhaps still too early. You know, If, if similar protests are up to gain, and if they're successful, then I think we'll be able to look back at them as the seeds of whatever, of the overthrow of Putin or whatever. Yeah? Whereas if Putin continues to rule for the next 25 years, I think we'll, five or 10 years, we'll just have forgotten about them completely, to be honest. Um, and the legacy of them, I think, basically was um, that the Kremlin got a lot harsher with dissent. And that also they kind of sparked a rise in anti-Western sentiments that were uh, obviously initially pushed heavily by state media, which then just filtered down into a lot of the general population, who perhaps it's a very kind of schizophrenic anti-Westernism as well, because I think a lot of the population recognizes perhaps that um, that life is better in some respects in the West, and that maybe Russia should be friendly to the West, but then also kind of sees, also kind of hates the West at the same time. But I think that kind of that idea of Russia and the West are again against each other. I don't know that they're again opposed. Um, I think that stems a lot from the protests, you know, from 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 state media's constant accusations that the opposition leaders were being funded by the West, in particular the U.S. State Department. That any anyone anyone who criticizes Putin is a national traitor who wants to sell their country out for like the Yankee dollar or whatever. You know? So uh, yeah, I mean, I think perhaps that that's 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 the legacy. Uh, it's quite a sad legacy. Because, I mean, people people don't know about things. I mean, people just to have conversations. I had a conversation the other day with a guy, and he was he was he was claiming he was applauding Trump, for example, and how how the people of America had risen up against like the vile oligarch system in America. And I was like, but, and I was like, don't you ever think about your vile oligarch system? And then, and 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 then and I was like, and he seemed to know everything about American politics. So I asked him if he knew. Like horrific statistics on HIV and AIDS in Russia. I mean, one of Russia's major cities recently reported that one in every fifty people is HIV positive. You know, and he was just like, that—that's a Western plot. That's got nothing to do with us. And anyway, if there is AIDS, it all came from the West. You know, so I mean, I think it just confused a lot of people. But the, the, I, mean, I think I think that directly comes from the protests. Right? Well, you know, before that, people didn't think like about the West so much like that. You know, I mean, there wasn't this impression that the West hates Russia and wants to destroy it. And, now, I, I want to ask you about your, your reporting in Russia uh, for the last 10 years or so, because you, you have been there for a long time. You've been living there for, what, like 15, and you've been reporting for about 10. So what are what are some of the challenges of trying to capture Russia for uh, readers? Well, I think obviously the main one is that editors want things to be very black and white. 
obviously. And um, it's very hard in an article sometimes to, to pick out the nuances. And there's also, especially in recent years, everything in some way has to be connected to Putin. Uh, that, that's what editors want. So, I mean, for example, I mean, I know obviously I'm exaggerated, but I mean, if you wrote an article about the harsh Russian winter, I wouldn't be surprised if the headline was Putin's snow, you know, I mean, something like this. Sometimes it's ridiculous, you know, and it, 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 it's quite frustrating. And there's also, I mean, if having been living here for a while, reporting for a long time, it's also hard sometimes to imagine that other people really don't know very much about Russia at all. You know? And then so, so it comes to, it comes as quite a shock when, for example, this, this Fox News headline that recently came out, you know, that the Trump report had no Soviet source, you know, so I mean, I mean, I mean, the mind just boggles it. And that means that like, there's a person in Fox News who still thinks Russia is a Soviet country. Like, how, how does that work? I mean, like, who, who is it? You know, how can any person who's educated enough to work in, in a media organization still think that Russia is a Soviet country? It's just, just just unexplainable. I don't, I don't understand that. It boggles the mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But I mean, I've heard that before. I mean, I've heard, I've heard some rights reporters, you know, like, like the KGB doesn't exist anymore. Russia's not a communist state. I mean, when they try, when they write headlines or small pieces of text to go with the article, you know, uh, just some of the ignorance is, is, is staggering. And also when you look at the comments to the articles as well, you know, like people, people seem to think that Putin is a communist. Putin's as far away from a communist as you could be, you know. In the ideological sense, anyway. So yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to sometimes write about things that I would prefer to write about, and not. I mean, some of them. I mean, obviously, political repression, the, the political situation is a worthy topic. But there's other, other times you'd like I'd like to write about things like the cultural underground, you know, like art. You know? Obviously, I'm, thankfully, there are some outlets where you could do this, uh, but not not so many. And, these aren't topics that people seem to want. Also, I mean, it's very frustrating the Western kind of um, image of Putin as well. You know, that he's like this kind of like all-seeing, all-knowing kind of figure you know, who is just like Darth Vader of, of, of with a Russian with a Russian accent as well. But as in fact, he's when in fact the reality is he's like not a very nice man. Like he was he was a minor thief who somehow rose to to make himself. Very powerful, and his friends very wealthy. But I mean, he's certainly not Darth Vader. And, and finally, how did the protests impact how you cover Russia? Well, first, they gave me a lot more contacts because, as I said before, like the opposition leaders that were around, they kind of there weren't so many of them. There weren't so many of them to be worth speaking to. It's debatable if they're, whether they're worth speaking to again now. You know, but at, at the time, there was a lot of people who seemed at least to be having some kind of impact, and. Um, but then again, I think that the, the, the kind of whole Western, the attitudes towards the West changed as well. And uh, in, my, in the book I read about, there were protests against a nickel mining project in central Russia, which I covered in the book. But then I went back down like a year and a half later to write a story for political on it. And um, well, after I left, the FSB came around and interviewed every single person I'd spoken to for like more than five or ten minutes. And they told them all that I was um, that I was a an agent of the U.S. State Department, which, which is like um, kind of strange since I'm British and I've never been to America. <laughs> and that I was, they asked the people, did he hand you any money? Because we know he's trying to, he's trying to, to, to foment a Maidan, Maidan kind of uprising in central Russia. This is what the FSB told the activists, which was shocking enough, but which was even more shocking about it. It was a half of the activists that believed it, <laughs> were right in terms 
I'm, well, I, well, I write into to my contact within the kind of protests down there. Like, why did you send this, this agent from from the U.S. State Department or Gosdev, as it's known in Russia, to us? We don't need we don't need like a U.S. like secret agent. And so, I mean, that 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 kind of changed after the protests as well, as a result of the anti-Western sentiments. But I think on the whole, I mean, the protests just made reporting from Russia more interesting. <laughs> I think it was became there suddenly became more things to write about and more people to speak to about those things. Uh, which again, I don't know if that's actually connected. I mean, I think the protests and the internet are very interconnected. You know? I, I, I don't think the protests would have happened without the internet. That was Mark Bennett, a British journalist who writes for Newsweek, The Times of London, and Politico, as well as other U.S. and British newspapers and magazines. He's the author of I'm Going to Ruin Their Lives, Inside Putin's War on Russia's Opposition, published by One World. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Sexy!